we've been talking about prayer, and we, we all want a better prayer life. We all want to be able to operate in faith more in our prayer, to get better results in our prayer life. And so we looked in one of our sessions on Jesus, as he told us, the disciple, one disciple came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, here's a model prayer for you. We sh- again, we should lean in. This is Jesus. This, this isn't somebody coming up with a model prayer. This is Jesus coming up with a model prayer. And so he leans in and he says, hey, here's a good model for you to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. And we discovered that real, the literal Greek actually says, our Father who is in the heavens. He permeates everything. The reason I think that's important, I don't think it's a bad translation, our Father who is in heaven, but I like the in heavens because it tells he permeates everything. He's always near. He's very present. He's an ever-present ever help. Because all of us, myself included, have had a time where we think, I hope I did everything right in my prayer. I hope I said the right things, did the right things, so it can make it to headquarters. You know what I mean? And so, but God's always present. He's here right now. Our Father who is in the heavens, who is very near. And in the Bible, there's three heavens. Even in in culture and in science, there's two heavens. There's the first heaven, which is the blue sky, the atmosphere we breathe, the planes fly in, the birds fly in. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is outer space. The third heaven, the biblical heaven, the third one, all three are mentioned in in the scriptures. The third one is where God lives. But we don't really know where that is, so we're trying to get a prayer up to him if we don't really understand. He is present. He's here right now. So it doesn't have to circumvent somewhere through outer space, make it past Jupiter, you know, get out there and then finally find heaven. It, he's everywhere. He's here. So we listen, we lean in as if God is speaking to us. We take that very, very precious that he's here and we can speak to him. But of the things that are listed in the Lord's Prayer, they're almost all asking for something. It's our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kind of some worship there. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're asking for something, aren't we? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth that is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're asking God for provision for our lives. Nothing wrong with that. Um, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And if you hear and I go, what in the world? Here's what we're really meaning when we pray that. Lord, forgive us of our sins and wrongdoings. And we're going to forgive those who have sinned against us and done us wrong. So forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, another ask. Deliver us from evil, another ask. So I looked at the Lord's Prayer differently this year and ever before. They're all really asking. Prayer, so much of prayer is asking God for something, which is okay. And there is, it, it starts with worship, ends with worship. Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever, amen. But there's asking going on. And so we don't need to be afraid to ask. And we need to learn how to ask correctly as, as the Lord teaches us. And I, I'll need a little mercy on today's message because I don't have this all figured out in my own life. And, and frankly, maybe it's not even supposed to be figured out. You know how we, maybe you're not wired up this way, I am. I like things to be packaged nice. I like to see things linear. I like to box it all up. I like to have a good formula. And maybe this is not even supposed to be formulated because it's a relationship. It's not a computer. It's a relationship. I actually had some computer programming classes in college, and and it's weird how the world has changed. When I was in high school, I don't think there was a computer in my high school anywhere, not even in the administration office. And so then I took a computer programming class, and when you computer program, when you're dealing with a machine, everything has to be just right to tell that machine what to do. If you put a forward slice where a backward slice needs to go, or a colon where a semicolon needs to go, it will not work. And then you have to look over all your coding and everything, find out where you made the mistake to make it right. 
I wrote programs, they were awful. They worked, but they were awful. And I remember thinking, these computers are never going to catch on. Because if you have to write a program for everything you do, that's how idiot I was about computers, then this is not going to work. But it was fascinating. See, one little piece of code was wrong. It all broke down. Now, I think sometimes we think our relationship with God is like that. Did I, did I say the right prayer? Did I have the right punctuation? Did I say the right name? Did I, did I do that? You know, oh, maybe, maybe I forgot to say in the name of Jesus when I ended. Well, let me say this. We are to do what we do in his name. I'm not sure that we have to say that all the time. The Bible says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. I think it's a beautiful way to end a prayer in Jesus' name. We're saying it's in his name, in his authority, that we have this prayer. But if you get, forget to say that, can we be real with one another? Weren't you praying in his name anyway? Wasn't that whose name you were doing that in? So I don't think we always have to say, I'm going to get up this morning in Jesus' name. I'm going to eat breakfast in Jesus' name. Well, the Bible says whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. We're going to live our lives like that. We have gathered here in the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know, even if we don't ever say that specifically, that is the reason we've gathered here. You know that. You're not sitting here going, oh my gosh, I thought we were at the Rotary Club. You're not wondering, I thought I, thought I was at the skating rink. No, you knew that you came here and that we're celebrating and gathering in the name of Jesus. So we're going to talk about praying and living in faith today. Praying and living in faith. We want to pray in faith, we want to live in faith. And what I'm going to say right now is really, really big. Uh, really big. Now, I don't know if you can get the TV working back here. If you can't, that's okay. We'll survive that. But this thing is, is big, and maybe, maybe all of you have heard it. Maybe very few of you have heard it. My suspicion is probably half of you have heard this. The worst thing is, if you've heard this, we'll be reminded of it, because it really brought refreshing to me to be reminded of this. And I get this from the Word of God. And I haven't arrived at this either, and that's okay. I don't know if we ever arrive at anything. I read a book, I can't remember if it was Andrew Murray or who. Some person is supposed to be, you know, amazing in prayer. And when I'm reading his book, he says, I am but an infant in prayer. And I thought, then what am I? You know, you know, you've written volumes on prayer. You've had a lifetime of prayer. That's okay. We're just growing. We just keep growing in the Lord. So we may have only just slightly scratched the surface of this. Don't let that depress you. Let's just keep growing. But I believe what I'm going to share with you now is from the Bible. And as we watch Jesus, as we listen to him, not audibly, but in the word, we're reading and we're hearing him talk and teach and train, we discover some things. There's some reasons that Jesus came. And there's many listed in the scriptures. Here's a reason Jesus came. He came to seek and save that which is lost. If you're here today and you're not a Christian... It's not an accident that you're here. You may think, well, I'm just here because somebody invited me and I finally got tired of telling them no. So I came with them today. Well, it's not an accident. Jesus is seeking you. He wants to save you. He wants to give you a really wonderful life that he is rescuing you from a life of death. Now, he said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Listen to what else he says. The scripture says about him, he gave his life as a ransom for many. That's the reason he came, to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, sometimes words get confusing, and we don't really pause to think that through. So I want to think it through for a moment. What's that mean? You were kidnapped. You were kidnapped by Satan and sin, and by the brokenness of this world. And you couldn't pay the price to get unkidnapped. 
But Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom payment. You've all seen some movie on somebody being kidnapped where they say, you pay the ransom or we'll kill the kid. And you pay the ransom, you get the child back. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. Well, Jesus paid the ransom for us. And we were bought back into a relationship, into the family of God. We were rescued from Satan, sin, death, hell, the grave, all those things. You know what else we were rescued from? We don't talk about this enough. We were rescued from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. See, sin demands justice and wrath. But God loved us so much, he did not want us to experience wrath. He sent his son to save us. The Bible says, Do you show contempt to God? For it is the goodness and kindness of God that leads you to repentance to change, to head towards God. And, but it says, but because you're stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself against the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. It's not a mean, unlawful, unrighteous, it's a righteous judgment. But God says, I don't want you to experience that. I sent my son to die for you. And so therefore, we, we actually have a, a freedom from the wrath of God, which is much more... Uh, horrible than anything. The Bible says, don't fear man who can kill the body. Fear, fear, fear God who can destroy both body and hell and soul and hell. That, we need to be mindful of the wrath of God and Jesus saves us. I'm happy to say today, I'm saved from the wrath of God. Jesus saves us. I came to seek and save those who are lost. I came to buy back those with my life as a ransom. And Jesus also said this. He said, you know what? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy from you, but I have come. This is another I have come. I have come that you might have what? Life. And not just life, but abundant life. Overflowing life. The, the Amplified Bible says, I think like this, it says that you might enjoy a rich and satisfying life. So here's, here's the reasons why Jesus came. Uh, none of which are my topic today, but they all were exciting, so I love those reasons Jesus came. Jesus, why did God... Sometimes people say, well, he had to do it that way. And part of me will say, okay, and then I think, you know what? No, God's too creative. He's too brilliant. To say that he only had one way to do something is, is probably not true. I mean, I might get painted in a corner and say, yeah, I think so. But, but I think of all the different ways God could do things. And God chose to clothe himself in a body, be born of a virgin, be birthed into the world as a human being, and live this life on the earth. Now, here's the, here's the big thing. It took me a lot of time to get to the big thing. I believe that one reason Jesus came was to model for us, to show us, to demonstrate for us how we human beings could live if we were filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. How we human beings could live if we were filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now you may say, where in the world did you get a crazy idea like that? From the Bible. So let's look at the Bible. Peter's talking to some Gentiles whom the Lord told him it was okay to go hang out with Gentiles. God said, I'm not going to call Gentiles unclean. So Peter said, well, if you're not going to call them unclean, I'm not going to call them unclean. So he goes, he's talking to these Gentiles who actually lived and saw and experienced Jesus in the physical, working in the community and around the region. And so in Acts 10, 36 through 39... It says, you know the message, he's speaking to this Cornelius' household, these Gentiles. He said, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord, capital L, he's God, Lord of all. You know what happened throughout the province of Judea. Now, here's, here's the key half of a verse. 
beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. What it's saying is, as you all know this, you all saw it, you all experienced it. He's talking to a group of people who saw Jesus, experienced his life. He said, there was a point in time where Jesus came to be baptized by his cousin John, and he was water baptized. And it was after that moment that something happened. Let's see what it says happened. After he was baptized in the river by John, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. I want you to see what's happening here. Obviously, Jesus is trying to model something for us because when he showed up for baptism, you know what John the Baptist said? What are you doing here? I haven't, no, you ought to baptize me. And because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance of sins. Jesus had no sin. He said, but I'm doing, uh, what I'm doing is to fulfill all righteousness. I'm, I'm setting a model, a pattern for people to follow. So you need to baptize me. And so Jesus was water baptized. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with power. And after that, it was after that, he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now, we can read that and say, Tracy, you're talking about Jesus. You're not talking about us. But I want to see the parallel. This same Jesus, after he'd risen from the dead, tells the people in Acts chapter 1, don't leave Jerusalem until. Don't leave Jerusalem until what the Father promised has come. And he's the Holy Spirit. He said, after that, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power. And you shall be my witnesses. So, and most of the witnessing in the book of Acts, by the way, is what I would call power evangelism. Not all of it, but a high percentage of it, which means... The people went out, they operated in signs, wonders, and miracles. Everybody was in wonder, and they would say, what's going on? And then they would preach Jesus. Not always, but a lot of it was that. And so, we're supposed to receive this power. Yeah, but you know, it says Jesus was anointed. Well, in 1 John, I think it's 1 John 2.20, it says, you have an anointing that abides in you by the Holy Spirit. I am saying if you're a Christian, because all this is a pattern of, of... Jesus showing us how to be believers and how to walk as someone filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is modeling something for us. And Jesus is going about doing good. There's more to the verse than that, but I think how we change the world if we just even stopped there. If we went about doing good. What would happen if everybody who named the name of Jesus just went about doing good? But he did more. He went about doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. Another powerful set of verses, Philippians 2, 5 through 9, that could be worded kind of funny. I think the New International Version does a good job of, of, of translating it in a way that's understood. You, you probably hear me say this a lot, and I'll try not to be labor. There's lots of different translations, and almost all of them are really good. Almost all of them are really good. But sometimes they'll say things in a different way. They'll change a, a, a wording, not change the intent or the concept, but change a wording. I have always loved... The Message Bible is not one of my favorites, but there's, a, there's in James chapter 1, if you'll read it in the Message Bible, it says, don't worry your prayers. I remember the first time I read that, I said, oh, thank you for wording it that way. That really connected with me. Don't worry your prayers. The person who's worrying their prayers, they're not in faith. Don't let that person think they'll receive anything from the Lord. 
And so I, that translation, that paraphrase actually kind of caught my heart. So let's look at Philippians 2, 5 through 9. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, whom? God, capital G. So we're not taking away Jesus' divinity or that he's God. Gospel of John, chapter 1, Jesus, the word is God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God. But look at what it says. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We're, we're seeing something here. Rather, instead of using his godhood to his own advantage, rather he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what's that saying? Nobody stole Jesus' divinity. He didn't lose it. He said, I'm going to set aside my divinity. I'm not going to operate on planet Earth as God. I'm going to operate on planet Earth as a man, anointed with the Holy Spirit, anointed with power, with whom God is with me. Which is exactly, even the word Holy Spirit, the Greek word for that is paraclete, and it means one called alongside to help you. So we have God with us, God in us, God upon us. We're to operate just like Jesus did. In fact, if you look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often referred to as the Gospels, you will find that Jesus almost always refers to himself as the Son of Man. Rarely does he refer him. Now, other people will call him the Son of God because they, they'll recognize him, they'll catch a glimpse of him, but he recognizes himself as the Son of Man. Again, not taking away his deity or his godness, but showing you how did he decide to do this thing. He wanted to operate on planet Earth as a human being, anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power to show us how we could do life on planet Earth as well. Now, I see in Scripture that Jesus believed his followers could and should be doing what he was doing. Now, this is a tough one for us, that we should be doing what he was doing. Do you realize the common thread in Jesus' conversation with his disciples after a failure they had? Here's this, or a variation of this. Why couldn't we do it, Jesus? Because you have so little faith. Because you're faithless and unbelieving. He always goes back to that. Now, how many times in the Bible do we see Jesus say this? The disciples try to do something, it doesn't work, or they don't even try, and they just call upon Jesus, and Jesus has to do it. How many times in Scripture do we find Jesus saying this? My precious little disciples, I love you little knuckleheads, <laughs> but you're trying to do something I'm doing, you can't. You can't do what I'm doing. You're not who I am. I'm God in human flesh. So, can we get this straight? I love your naive hearts. You cannot do what I'm doing. You never will be able to do what I'm doing. Just stop. Quit trying. You can't do it. How many times do we find Jesus telling his followers that? None. Zero. It's a really good opportunity, too. I mean this seriously. When they say, why couldn't we do it? Wouldn't that be a great answer if that was the answer? You're not God. You're not the Son of God. How in the world did you expect to raise someone from the dead? You're not the Son of God. You can't do these things. But he never says that. He always says something along the lines of, because you had so little faith. 
The thing that saddens me about that is sometimes people leave a message like this discouraged. Don't be discouraged. We're growing. You ought to say, I'm, I'm one step closer to being the man or woman of faith I should be because the word of God's getting in me. Don't be discouraged. Just keep moving forward. Keep moving forward in our walk with God. But Jesus said in John 14, it's better for you that I leave and send the Holy Spirit because when you have the Holy Spirit, the same works that I'm doing you will do and even greater works than these because I've gone to the Father. Hmm. Is that true? Or is he just lying? It's true. Jesus said, the works that I am doing you shall do and even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. That's what Jesus said. So let's, let's let Jesus, Jesus' words are life. See, Jesus stood by one day and he said, you know what? He said, you search these scriptures, which by the way, he wasn't against searching the scriptures. He said, you search these scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but these scriptures speak of me. But you refuse to come to me so that you might have life. But when we come to Jesus and we have life, guess what? His words now have life. He said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And when we come to him, we get opened up to the spirit and life of his word. So, even greater works Jesus said we'd do. But I want to look at some things here. Uh, here's the disciples working at, doing what they should be doing in Matthew, the 17th chapter. Uh, this dad is, is desperate to get a healing for his son. He brings his son to the disciples. They apparently pray for him with no success because it opens up with this as he's talking to Jesus, the father. I brought him, my son, to your disciples, but they could not heal him. The only way you know they couldn't heal him is they tried and they didn't succeed. I want to say this, kudos to him for trying. You know what I mean? Good. At least, at least they, were in, they were in the game. They were in the fight. He said, I brought him to your disciples. They could not heal him. And Jesus, again, seriously, would this not be the perfect point to say, of course they couldn't. They're not me. But he says this, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. By the way, not all sickness is demonic. You'll see Jesus healing people who were just sick. They had a disease. They had an infirmity. They had an injury. They had whatever. But some was. And there's examples of that throughout the scripture too. This was an example of where that sickness was radiating out of demonic oppression. Now, I want us to watch this interaction here to see what we need to do to have better results in our prayer life and to grow in our faith. It's the disciples and Jesus on a boat. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. A big storm comes up, and here we pick up on the story, Mark 4, 38 through 40. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care we are going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the winds and said to the waves, Silence, or if you learned it in King James like I did, Peace, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, now notice this, he didn't say to them, wow, good thing you woke me up. We'd be dead right now if you hadn't woke me up. But no, he looks at them and he asks them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
this interaction reveals Jesus' Jesus's disciples' problem. It reveals my problem. Probably reveals your problem too. But Jesus and his words, great problem solver, so we're going to keep growing in God's word. The disciples' problem in our, ours is this. Let's see that next slide. They had great faith in Jesus, but they did not have the great faith of Jesus. They had great faith in Jesus, but they did not have the great faith of Jesus. See, they were totally convinced that if they could get to Jesus, they believed in Jesus that he could use his faith to solve their problem. So, if I can get to Jesus, then he will exercise his faith and the problem will be solved. And it it was. But there's a problem on the horizon. Jesus is leaving. What are you going to do when he's not there physically where he can run? Oh, I'm so good. So glad you're in the boat with me. I'm so glad you were here in that. But Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send another one just like me. The Holy Spirit. So I said, I'm going to send another one just like me, the Holy Spirit. In fact, it'll be better for you that I go and send the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you, in you, on you, through you. He'll lead you into all truth. He'll show you things to come. He'll be called alongside to help you. He'll counsel you. Do you remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree? It's a pretty popular story in the Bible. If you never heard it, it's a simple little story. Jesus goes to a fig tree. He goes to get a fig off of it. There's no figs on it. It has leaves on it. It's supposed to have figs when it has leaves is what I've studied. And Jesus actually speaks out loud to the tree. He speaks out loud to it. He says, may no man eat fruit of you again. And the disciples who were with him heard him. So he spoke out loud. May no man eat fruit of you again. The next day they're walking by. Peter looks at the tree and says, oh my goodness, the tree that you cursed, Jesus, it's withered from the root. And Jesus basically says this, my paraphrase, that's nothing. He says, that's nothing. Have faith in God. The literal Greek says, have faith faith from God. And the Young's literal translation says, have the faith of God. Actually, like them all. Have the faith of God. Have faith in God. Just exercise this faith that comes from the Lord. The disciples, when they felt like the boat was going down, they were doomed. They had to wake up Jesus. But Jesus was totally teaching them and teaching me and you. Are you with me? They're totally teaching me and you as well. Jesus was trying to get us to have faith inside us. Faith inside us, inside our spirit, inside our mind, inside our heart, however you want to word it. He wanted us to have faith inside us so that we could call upon his name. Now, one thing he wasn't trying to do was you to think you have faith only in yourself and you don't need Jesus. He was not trying to train you, I am God's man or woman of power, I have faith, I... I can do whatever. No, everything's dependent upon Jesus. Everything's dependent upon him. And so we have faith in him. And the God kind of faith, by the way, it's a faith that believes and speaks. It's a faith that believes and speaks. Very simple. God believes something, and he speaks it. God believes that there's going to be light, and he says, let there be light. It's kind of confusing if you ever pay attention to the creation story. There's light, I forget now, like two or three days before there's a sun, a moon, and a star. Wow, so there's just light radiating out there? Because we're so conditioned that, well, it had to have a source. It did. God. God. As crazy as that is, at midnight tonight in this room, there could just be light. 
with no physical reason, if God chose to just put light in here. It could happen. Because he is the source. It's not something he created that's necessary, the source. He is the source. And so I want us to look at another champion of faith and kind of compare the disciples versus this centurion in Matthew 8, 5 through 10 and verse 13. It says, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, and every time I say the word Capernaum, I've had the privilege of actually being in Capernaum. So my mind sees Capernaum. And I, I think it'd be great if we'd all just go to Israel and go to the Holy Land. See, I said life would be so much easier if we were all independently wealthy, okay? So if we were all independently wealthy, we'd just go over there. When I, when I think of Jesus teaching, uh, on, uh, preaching on the mountainside, I see that. When I see Golgotha, the place of the skull, the, the empty tomb, it's just kind of cool to do that. It won't make you a better Christian necessarily. It's just kind of neat that your mind's eye can see all that. So maybe we'll all get to go. I do know this. You love Jesus? We're all going to be in the new Jerusalem. I'll make you that promise right now. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. A centurion was a Roman soldier. Uh, center, century, you get the idea, 100. This centurion was in charge of 100 soldiers. So this centurion was a uh, you know, pretty big deal in the, mil- the Roman military. So this Roman military leader, a centurion, came to him, Jesus, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. He's really in pain. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, my servant will be healed, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say this when he goes, go and he goes, to another come and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. Now, before we get to Jesus' response, there's a very telling sign that he says, he's a person under authority. You never have real authority unless you're under authority. Because the authority you have has to come from somewhere. There has to be a uh, uh, way up the flow chart. And so this guy is under the Roman military authority. He has, I'm sure, generals and what, however their structure was above them, who has commissioned him, anointed him, empowered him to have authority. And so this centurion says, I see Jesus' kingdom and how this works, and I understand he's got a kingdom going on like the little kingdom I'm in. He's under authority, and therefore he's empowered to do things. And so the centurion is empowered. Now, for the sake of just understanding this, if you, let's say the centurion decided when he's 18 years old, I'm not going to become a Roman soldier. I'm going to, to get in my father's business, which is, we'll say, growing olives. I'm going to be an olive manufacturer. If he had gone that route of being an olive manufacturer, would he have authority over 100 Roman soldiers? No, because he wasn't under authority. He had to come under that authority to have that authority. And so he came under that authority and he says, you just have to speak the word. He says, when I tell one of my soldiers to go, if I tell him to go get supplies, I don't go with him and help him get supplies. You don't have to say something and go help it happen because Jesus, you're a person of authority. And so Jesus heard him. He marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Among all the religious leaders, among all the chosen people, even among the great people he hung out with, he said, I've not seen such great a faith. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And the servant was healed that same hour. Now, I want to compare those two because they both got the results they wanted from Jesus, but one group came to Jesus in fear and worry, and don't you care, we're drowning, and you know, what's going on? 
And they did get Jesus to move and do what they wanted. But here, this guy comes to him in faith. I see how you work. Now, do you understand? He didn't say, if I could just have faith by myself, I could heal my servant myself. No, he knew that it would flow through Jesus. So what we do flows through Jesus. It's not going to come from us. It comes from Jesus. So how do we develop this inner faith? The faith of God inside. It's the God kind of faith. How do we have faith in Jesus' name? Again, the teaching's not that you'll have it apart from him, but how do we have it with him? The disciples in the boat were depending upon Jesus out of fear and worry. The centurion was depending upon Jesus out of faith. Peter and John one day, they're walking to the temple, and they're going to pray. And they're walking along. You've heard the story before. And there's a lame man. I tell it with some regularity. A lame man at the gate beautiful, begging. Probably from I've already been there forever. For years and years and years. Begging money, money, money. The Bible says that Peter and John looked at him. And he got excited. And said, I'm going to get something. Because we all know this, honestly, from our own, our own thing. When there's a beggar and we don't want to give. We get involved in a conversation that turns our head away from the beggar. Well, he knew that. He knew what the system was. But these two people are looking at him. So they go, oh, they fixed eyes on me, so I'm going to get something. And he does. More than he ever bargained for. John says, we don't have, or Peter said, we don't have any money on us. But what we do have, we'll give you. In the name of whom? In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he rises up and he walks. The crowd gathers around. They think, oh, John and Peter must be angels or a god of some kind. He said, why are you looking at us as though by our own power we did some strange thing? It wasn't us. It was this Jesus. But they were a conduit who believed, they believed in themselves that Jesus could do what he said he would do. Now, I want, want to make sure I said it. They didn't believe in themselves. They believed on their inside that Jesus would do what he said he would do. And he did. So how can we prove in the area of prayer and faith? First of all, it comes back to we've got to nourish ourselves on God's word. We have to nourish ourselves on God's word. I, I can't find any way to get around this. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I want to say this. You need more than just what you've gotten right now. You may say, well, Pastor read six or seven sets of verses. Isn't that enough for the week? No, it's not. Now, you could take these verses and chew on them all week long. That would be good. That would feed you. And nourish yourself on the word. By the way, a little side note. I'm not promoting massive quantities of the word as much as I would promote really digesting the word. One guy I know who loved the Lord intensely is very wise. He pastored for years figured out he wasn't supposed to be a pastor. God actually spoke to him and said, I didn't call you to be a pastor. So we get this crazy idea. Oh, well, if you really love Jesus, you've got to do something like be a pastor or a missionary or, you know, youth leader or something. No. You know what he's called to? He was called into business. And so he left the ministry, not in a bad way, just left the ministry, got in business. And several years later, he became a multimillionaire. You'd never know it to meet him. He couldn't care less about stuff. He couldn't care less about things. He wore, he wore every day the the uh, company uniform, you know, that you get from the little uniform companies that had his name on here, Earl. That's what he wore every day. He went out and showed me a new car he bought, new to him, $1,500, okay, multimillionaire. But one of the missionaries that we've supported here, for, for quite a while, he gave him over $17,000 every month. That's just one of the missionaries he supported. So that was what God called him to do. 
And so he, he became a very generous person in giving. And he told me one time, he said, the Lord will not let me get out of Psalm 23. He had stayed in Psalm 23 for like six months. Just, and he kept getting just so filled up on Psalm 23. I would rather have you get stuck in Psalm 23 for three years and grow into what God wants you to be than to come to me and say, I just want you to know, Pastor, the last three years I've read the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation. How did it change your life? Not at all, but I've read the whole Bible three times. You know, let the word of God be life and living to you. Let it nourish you. There's a guy named Richard Foster. I love his book, Celebration of Discipline. It's probably one of my favorite books. He uh, been like most of us, Christian for many, many years, prayed a lot of prayers. Won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us prayed lots and lots of prayers and sometimes saw very little results. And so he's a little frustrated with that. So one day he decided that he's going to take all the all the scriptures of Jesus praying, just all put them in one pile and just read them. And all the scriptures of Jesus ministering and just put them in one pile. Here, here's what he discovered. When I could read Jesus' teaching on prayer in one sitting, I was shocked. Either the excuses and rationalizations for unanswered prayer that I had been taught were wrong, or Jesus' words were wrong. Now, if you're going to pick, pick that you're wrong, not Jesus. I determined to learn to pray so that my experience conformed to the words of Jesus rather than try to make his words conform to my impoverished experience. Wow. Yes. Well, we can't do all those things, says who? Not Jesus. Oh, well, we can do some of the things of Jesus. We just can't do those power things of Jesus. It's amazing that across the board, churches believe everywhere that we should love like Jesus loved. We should care like Jesus cared. We should be compassionate like Jesus is compassionate. We should be giving and generous and forgiving. And the list goes on and on and on. And every church rallies, yes, let's be like that. You cannot be like that unless the power of the Holy Spirit is in you. The Isaiah prophesies of Jesus' crucifixion and said his visage, this is the way the King James says, his visage was marred more than any man. Let me bring that in modern translation. He was so badly beaten that you could hardly tell he was a human being. He was nailed to the cross. He was convicted and murdered as a totally 100% innocent person. And while he's there looking like a ragged hunk of meat hanging on a cross, he voices these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. We can't forgive the guy that cuts us off in traffic. And yet we go, we should love like Jesus loved. I think we should love like Jesus loved, forgive like Jesus forgave, be like Jesus. But it will take the power of the Holy Spirit. And... When it comes to raising the dead, healing the sick, curing leprosy, casting out demons, it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit. And the truth is this. Don't think you're going to love like Jesus loved. And that would be simple, but healing a sick person would really be hard. They're both impossibly hard for a human being, but not too hard for God in us. For now unto him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above, all we can ask think or imagine according oh, I'd love the rest of the verse according to his power that is at work guess where within us according to his power does it work within us this is what Jesus was modeling for us 
And if you say, well, I, I can't love like Jesus loved, let me ask the question, should it still be our goal? Absolutely. Should I forgive? Should I care? Should I have compassion? Should I have generosity? Should I have a, a non-judgmental, non-condemning spirit that Jesus had? Absolutely, I should. Well then, should I lay hands on the sick and see them recovered and believe God to raise the dead? And Yeah, why not? Why not? It's all going to take the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all going to take the power of the Holy Spirit. So what are we going to do? We're going to practice doing the Word of God. We're just going to do the Word of God. God's Word says do it, we're going to do it. We're just going to keep doing it. See, that's why I don't get aggravated. There's, and it's not a formula. There were seven sons of a, a high priest named Siva in the book of Acts that were going around working as exorcists, trying to cast out demons. First of all, I mean this. I salute them. They're out there in the game. They're out there hustling. You know, I wonder what happened if we just went out there and tried something. So they're out there. Apparently, they've been watching Paul, the great apostle and church planter of the early church. And so they've been observing him. And they go to cast out a demon out of a guy. And they say this. They got the formula down. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. Guess what? He didn't come out. In fact, the demon speaks through him and says, Paul, most translations say this, Paul I know, or Jesus I know, and Paul I know. But several translations, because that one about Paul is a, is a, a weaker verb. For instance, you know I know Darlene and my brothers and we, that. But if you ask me, do you know Andy Stanley? I'd say, oh yeah, I know, I know who Andy Stanley is. It's, it'd be a weaker verb. I've never met him, talked to him, shook his hand, had a conversation. But I've read his books, listened to him speak, so I kind of feel like I know him. I've seen him. It's a lesser verb. So here is, this is the way I like the translation, and it's, it's a good one. The demon said this, Jesus I know, and I've heard about Paul. But I have no idea who you are. And then that demon-possessed man tore into seven men. It's kind of sad, but I laugh at it too. Uh, the Bible says, those seven men left that home bloody, battered, and naked because one demon-possessed man handled them easily. He had the formula. He had the code. He corrected all the code and had it right. But you know what he didn't have? Relationship. He didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. So it didn't work for him. So he'd just go out there and practice and practice and practice doing what we're going to do. Now, I want us to decide today to live in faith and pray in faith.